I started off by issuing a lawsuit to the Department of Justice for the FBI file of Billy Graham. And that thread that I pulled upon revealed partnerships um, between white evangelicals and the FBI. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I talk about college football, of all subjects. And then later on the pod, we sit down with Professor Lerone Martin. He's got a new book out titled The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism. We have a wonderful conversation with him, and it is a book that you're going to want to pick up and read or listen to right after this pod. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good episode. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Okay, I've got to start out the pod by asking you Uh-oh. about something that I witnessed that I don't think I've ever seen before. Uh-oh. <laughs> and you're involved in it. Wait, you can't say that on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. Okay, so we are in week two of college football, week yes. one of the NFL. And so, I mean, we enjoy sports and we follow yeah, yeah. you know we follow hockey and baseball especially the boston teams um but recently you know and, and the sooners just because we live in norman oklahoma but i walk into the living room this weekend <laughs> you are sitting there by yourself working on your computer watching college football by yourself and it was like what am i what am i, I know <laughs> well well, what happened was, <laughs> no, I do enjoy sports ball, you know, in the sense that I was born and raised Dallas Cowboy fan, you know, and just throughout the years have kind of ebbed and flowed in my fandom for any sport. But no, I mean, I would say in the last 10, 15 years, well, since our kids, you know, got involved in extracurriculars and sports, and that's what took up our weekends, you know, have not. But no, this football season is crazy. <laughs> I'm so here for it. And now I'm like... I'm remembering some of the teams that are playing. And I think what happened was in week one of football, college football, yes. which we do definitely like college oh, yeah. football Absolutely. more than professional. It's more fun. But in week one, there were just some major surprises, I thought, some upsets. and and I Well, we had the Colorado I, story with uh, yeah, Deion Sanders taking over Colorado, going down to TCU and beating them. And beating them. TCU. Yes. That was the first thing. Oh. And then who else? Can okay, help me oh, remember? The, and then there was a great game that night between Clemson and Duke, and Duke upset Clemson. Yes, so there was that one. And then did the – no, the Aggies won their first yeah. one. Anyways, so it was just – there were there was just enough – of kind of drama happening that I did this past <laughs> Saturday, you were doing something else and I had needed to get some work done. And I found myself not only turning on football, but I'm not kidding you searching the guide for the games <laughs> I wanted to watch. This has never oh happened. Oh my gosh. So I could just anticipate this week walking into the living room and you're going to have eye black underneath your eyes. I know, I know. Well, I mean, or if, or if you're lucky, a cheerleading uniform, right? Am I right? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, I found myself looking for, who was I looking for? I'm trying to remember. It might've been, um, 
TCU or something. Anyways, but I landed on the Baylor game. Oh my god! And I was flipping back and forth between that one and all right, Baylor Bear fans, you may just want to take a moment. And the A&M you may want to game. turn it down a little and bit. And so I I found these games and and obviously Baylor did not prevail for the second week in a row. I'll give y'all a minute. <laughs> Okay, we're back. <laughs> and I started thinking, it's almost like karma's in here somewhere. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. You can direct those emails to That's Missy right. at... We, we just lost a lot of our <laughs> listenership right now. But our listenership who are, are Baylor alums and Baylor fans are odd. Are, I mean are with us on, on these things yeah, that they're absolutely. doing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, when you have a major athletic program that's, that's you know, bringing in money and prestige and exposure for your school, and then you go and do boneheaded things, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, sometimes yeah. you might regret that. Well, speaking of boneheaded things. And that's the, the most intelligently I can talk about it. So, <laughs> Well, speaking of boneheaded things, the big the, the biggest bonehead of them all, Art Bryles is actually in Norman, Oklahoma this oh, week. Oh my goodness, you guys, if you do not live in Norman, Oklahoma to see the, the, the fallout from that, I just, yeah. I'm sorry for you because it's been quite a um, for those non Baylor fans or non Baptist fan Art Bryles was the head football coach for the Baylor Bears several years ago uh, it was he was embroiled in turmoil a uh, lot of bad things happen on his watch he was uh, fired and then he shows up here in Norman his son-in-law is the offensive coordinator here at the University of Oklahoma and it was quite the to-do wasn't it it was I didn't notice it I didn't see it I just obviously through social media started here. I mean, it was such an uproar. So anyways, it, it, so yes, the drama has definitely hooked me. I look forward to week three tomorrow <laughs> starting. So I don't know who's playing anyone, but um, if, if this keeps up, I'm going to, yes, really get into it. I'm going to need to pick a team to, I don't know, be devoted to. Yeah. Well, so if you have any suggestions, let me know. <laughs> okay. My requirements are their colors have to be decent. Cause I'm not wearing something ridiculous. So okay. Yeah. There you go. But well. anyways, okay. So welcome to our sports podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, like I guess I was so surprised walking in the living room and seeing you watching uh, college. It is different. Like I'm all for watching it when it's like yeah. a, an event and we've got people getting together. But no, I definitely did seek out the games to watch. Never happened before. Yeah. But here we are. Well, speaking of college, we have a college professor on the show this week. We do. I wonder how their football team is doing. Stanford's actually pretty good, but I think this year they've gotten off to a, the wrong wrong foot. Okay. Well, they haven't crossed my radar yet. Yeah. But anyways. Yes. This week we have a professor from from Stanford University, Professor Larone A. Martin. He is the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor of Religious Studies and Director of Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. He's got a brand new book out titled The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism. Okay, I have two things to say. One, you said that with a little too much enthusiasm. <laughs> and, Sorry about that. Two, but it's such a good book. Oh, I know. Uh, such, I know. It's, it's a so well fantastic book, but you say that as if it's like it was uplift. I don't know. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not uplifting. And no, it's a great, it's a great book. Don't yeah. get me wrong. It was just, that was funny. The tone was more Saturday afternoon football than, uh, that's you true. know, <laughs> Christian nationalism. That's true. Anyways, so I... Thoroughly enjoyed Lerone. I mean, he is obviously brilliant um, historian, human being, and wrote this amazing book. Has written before, 
But he did something. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> after we stopped recording, that has made me a forever fan of his. I mean, you're talking about a world premiere scholar that's you know been published in, in periodicals and got two great books out. Right. It just has you know waxed on elelegantly about his book and subject. And at the end, after we hit after stop, we hit stop, he said he asked when our the episode would would drop and then he wanted to make sure he had the link so he could send it to his mom <laughs> it was so sweet i melted <laughs> so dear larone's mom you have raised a fantastic human being and i am so thankful for him and he is forever endeared in my mind as a mom of two young adult sons i just think that oh that was so sweet for him to want to make sure that his mom got to hear this so that's right so to larone's mom welcome we hope you enjoy the interview stay tuned we'll be right back with professor larone martin as we talk about his brand new book the Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism. You know, Missy, I really enjoy recording this podcast with you each and every week. Do you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is not the only thing we do at Good Faith Media. It's not. We have so many offerings for you. We have a plethora of podcasts, videos, news and opinion articles, Bible studies, books, and much, much more. Find us at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Stanford, California. Professor Larone A. Martin is the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor of Religious Studies and Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. Martin is the author of the award-winning Preaching on Wax, the Phonograph, and the Making of a Modern African-American Religion. The book received the 2015 First Book Award by the American Society of Church History. His new book, The Gospel of J.S. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism, is currently available. Professor, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a privilege and a blessing to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, Professor, let's talk a little bit about a current assessment of Christian nationalism, the political rise of Donald Trump seem to grant permission for a new kind of Christian nationalism to emerge, but I mean, perhaps it was always there. Can you speak to what we're seeing now in Christian nationalism and why it is so dangerous? Yes. I mean, I think what we're seeing today is a, a reinvigoration of Christian nationalism that we've seen in the past. But I think what we're seeing today that makes it so dangerous is that it is being affirmed in the most powerful place in the country, um, being both the White House, especially during the Trump administration, particularly during the Trump administration, but even now increasingly today on Capitol Hill. So I think what we're seeing now is the way that it's being affirmed. I think another thing that is making it um, even more pernicious and dangerous is the development of communication technology. You know, in my first book, I primarily uh, wrote about the phonograph as a communication technology, and it was, but it didn't have the type of rapid speed 
of dissemination that we see today. And what we see today is, is the ability for someone to make a claim about uh, Christians being attacked within our culture or a claim about Christians being thrown out of the FBI, neither of which will be provided with evidence, but with the speed of communication technology, those claims can spread throughout the country like wildfire. And what it does is it affirms a certain kind of ideal within America that Christians are under attack and that America is somehow being brought um, to its knees by this undercover cabal of Satan worshipers or whatever it may have you. And I think that's part of the danger of what we're seeing today with Christian nationalism. It's both it's being affirmed at the seat of power and the ability for stories and narratives to spread throughout the country at rapid speed. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that now that you've kind of set the tone for your assessment of what's going on with Christian nationalism today, is that you made a connection with an institution that I had never been introduced to. I mean, for those of us who have been combating Christian nationalism for decades now, we understand white supremacy and the role it played in Christian nationalism uh, you know, beginning obviously way before Brown v. Board, but it really became prevalent after Brown v. Board and through public education all across the South. You saw it begin to rise within uh, local, state, and federal institutions. But for the very first time, you connect the culture and policies of the FBI with Christian nationalism. And this was the first time I had ever seen those two connected. So why why is it essential for us to understand this historic connection? Absolutely. And I think it connects to the first question. So recently, the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs issued a report in which it said that in concerning domestic terrorism, that is white supremacist violence that has taken precedence over any concerns around international terrorism, but that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security have yet to retool their resources to confront this most pressing threat to the homeland. And I believe part of the reason um, for that is because of the long history within the FBI of Christian nationalism and the FBI's connections with white evangelical faith communities. And that's the story that I tried to tell in this book. And I think it, it can help us understand why, why we are where we are today in our society. And it's, I started off by um, issuing a lawsuit um, to the Department of Justice um, to sue for the FBI file of Billy Graham. And that thread that I pulled upon um, revealed a great deal of history of partnerships um, between white evangelicals and the FBI. And I did my best to document that in the book. Yeah, 
And you, you did a, a brilliant, brilliant job. And, you know, what was fascinating to me to read not only about uh, the information you gleaned uh, from the, the Graham file, but, uh, and we're going to talk about this here in a second, about Hoover's connection with Christianity today, but going inside the FBI itself, when you talk about the annual FBI employees mass and communion breakfast, as well as the FBI hosting the Protestant Vesper service, I mean, Christian nationalism was not only intertwined within the ideology of the FBI, but it was front and center in the practice of policies internally within the FBI. It was, uh, you know, and I am a Christian and there's nothing wrong with employees in the FBI who want to worship right on their own, both then and now. The problem was that it became official FBI policy and that J. Edgar Hoover stated that the FBI's mission was to defend and to perpetuate America's Christian endowment. And the way that he practiced that was by primarily and exclusively only hiring white FBI agents until he was of course forced to do otherwise in 1962. And as you mentioned, having worship services and spiritual practices become a part of the actual fabric of the FBI, including having FBI agents sign the law enforcement pledge when they applied for the, to the Bureau, which stated that FBI agents would see themselves in part as ministers and as soldiers. And this idea of the minister and the soldier was embedded in the Bureau as a way for the FBI to see itself as preserving America as a white Christian nation. And that's where uh, all the trouble um, and really the violence and the skewing of the FBI's actual constitutional duties began. So my next question, you've already kind of touched on it a little bit, was you know how, how did Hoover's faith background play a part in the policies he championed as director of the FBI? Can you just Talk a little bit more about some specifics for our listeners to understand exactly how that played out. Yes, it's interesting. J. Edgar Hoover was not a white evangelical. He was raised in the Presbyterian Church. He um, taught Sunday school. He really saw a connection between sort of a militarized idea of faith and, and, and the church. So he, when he taught Sunday school at his Presbyterian church, he would actually wear his cadet uniform. He was a cadet at his high school. So he would show up to teach Sunday school in this cadet uniform. And it was a very masculine militaristic idea of the Christian faith. There was no meek and lowly Jesus, right? This was a masculine <laughs> masculine Christ for Hoover. And he considered going into the ministry, um, but his father um, uh, died and he felt that he needed to go off and make money for his family. And so Hoover um, went to law school at night and he worked at the Library of Congress during the day. And from there, he continued teaching Sunday school, continued in the faith and developed this Christian nationalist theology about America being a Christian nation, being solely led by white men, that women and people of color were um, secondary or second class citizens. And from there really began to attract 
um, a following of what we would know as white evangelicals, especially in post-war America, even though he himself was not born again, but he had a kind of politics that many in post-war America saw as being the proper form of religion and politics. They, he was constantly asked by Billy Graham's magazine, uh, Decision Magazine, by Christianity Today, which he wrote um, several essays for, if he was born again. And Hoover would, would say, no, I'm, I'm not born again, but I was raised in church and I believe America is a Christian nation. And unfortunately for many, that was enough to look to him as a Christian leader and as a Christian soldier and a Christian statesman. So, Professor, we had Jonathan Igon, uh, the show, a couple of months ago. He just released uh, his new biography on Martin Luther King, and there's a lot inside his story of King that talks about uh, Hoover's uh, attack on King and, you know, just going after him right and left, uh, trying to discredit him uh, in, you know, and trying to use information to silence him in many ways. As I think, as I read your book and read the assessment, his relationship with Graham, as you've already articulated, as well with C.F.H. Henry, who's the, the founder and editor of Christianity Today, who launches it, um, those relationships seem to be very central in beginning to um, lay the foundation for what we're experiencing today. He did not... He did not, um, I guess, align himself with those in the King theological family uh, or Howard Thurman. I mean, just the list goes on. Um, He really wanted to advance that Graham and Henry perspective and application of faith and nationalism. Uh, Can you speak to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Graham and Carl F.H. Henry and white evangelicals at this time called themselves white evangelical moderates. And by that, they meant that they, you know, were not, they were certainly not right wingers. They were certainly not to believe in using violence, right, to accomplish their goals. But they did believe that America could first and foremost be fixed by individual conversions and by people being born again. And that if people were born again, then that would fix all that ailed America. Mm-hmm. What we have, of course, with um, folks such as Martin Luther King Jr. and others, they believed in a social gospel, a social gospel that believed individuals should be born again, right? Uh, King believed in that. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, their tagline and motto was to, you know, save the soul of America. They believed in the saving of souls, but they also believed that laws that um, hindered people from flourishing, hindered people from having um, a livable wage, that having housing and education also needed to be changed. And Graham and Hoover and Carl F.H. Henry, many of them saw that philosophy or that theology as foreign. And for Hoover, he would classify that as communism. Mm-hmm. Hoover believed that America was established by God and its form of government was an expression of Christianity. And then anybody who wanted to alter that should be viewed 
with suspicion. And that is how Hoover viewed Martin King. He did not believe he was a real minister. He was preaching something foreign. It wasn't Christianity. And the pages of Christianity today are filled with critiques on these ideas about changing society, the way the King thought society should be changed, accusing him of being a communist and those who agreed with him of being communist. And so there is a real theological conflict there between how we go about fixing the problems that ail in the ail America. Now, of course, from my perspective as a historian, we see that just simply changing quote unquote souls doesn't necessarily mean we're going to change society and change laws that hinder people, that cause people to be uh, uh, to, to work in conditions where they can't have a livable wage, that cause people to not have access to good education and housing and water and things of that nature. So I clearly find myself, you know, siding with the more Martin King, sure. Howard Thurman gospel, and Fannie Lou Hamer and others. Absolutely. But uh, Hoover, Hoover and Graham and others saw this as a theology that was flawed. And of course, Hoover will go even further and believe that someone like Martin Luther King Jr. needed to be restrained. Right. And you tell a story uh, about uh, Carla Henry and Christianity Today and Hoover. Hoover uh, publishes this book, Masters of Deceit. And Henry wants to dedicate the first four to five pages of Christianity Today uh, to reprint uh, Hoover's book. Yes. Talk about how significant it was that a publication of that ilk titled Christianity Today was pushing Hoover's Christian nationalism and how that continues to play out today. And what's interesting, and this is where I want you to kind of bring it full circle, is that the individual who actually spoke out against Trump lost his job within the Southern Baptist Convention, who's now the editor of Christianity Today, which I thought was fascinating. So speak to that, if you will. Thanks. Yes, absolutely. Um, Christianity Today is founded to really be the intellectual mainframe and mouthpiece of the movement that would become known as white evangelicals is founded in the fifties. And when Hoover writes this book um, called uh, masters of deceit, which is ghostwritten by an FBI agent who has a PhD from Washington university in St. Louis and is a Methodist lay preacher. He's the primary ghostwriter of this book. And he writes this book and it lays out everything that is uh, communism that is trying to attack America. And it includes African-Americans our Jewish brothers and sisters and others. Right. And the Christianity today is taken with this book. They believe that like, yes, this is the message we've been preaching as well. We've got to get back to the fundamentals of the faith. We've got to get everyone saved and born again and committed to Jesus. And then we'll fix all that ails America and we'll stop communism for, you know, destroying the soul of the nation. They want to reprint this book, as you've stated. Hoover is resistant to it. It's a New York Times bestseller. He doesn't want to mess with his sales. He's not so sure about Christianity today. I mean, priorities, right? (laughs) Priorities, that's right, that's right. So he, on the advice of um, one of his agents, um, who is a Southern Baptist himself, says, they say, hey, you know, if you write some essays for this magazine, we can guarantee that pretty much it's going to end up in pulpits around the country. Mm -hmm. So like, this is worthy for us to at least write some essays for them. And so Hoover begins a process of becoming a contributor and writing essays for Christianity today, 
and becomes a stalwart contributor and, and, and the essays that he writes end up in Christianity Today, but also the FBI distributes them with the, the Department of Justice stamp of approval on the actual essays. They say reprinted from Christianity Today and they're distributed across the nation from FBI field offices. It is giving the idea that Christianity Today is, is, is a part of the halls of power and is issuing official U.S. policy from the Department of Justice. And it also gives them gives readers the idea that, oh, this Christianity Today has connections with the FBI, the organization that is built to protect us. It is built to pr- give us domestic security. So this is the answer and the policy for us to follow. This is all making me super uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, of course. Uh, okay, so I, I want to follow and up I on think, that. And I think, and, yeah. the, and, and I, let me just say one more thing, and I think that it's interesting that we come full circle that when Christianity Today finally, it takes them a while, mm-hmm. but when it, the editor finally comes out against Trump, he basically does it on his way out the door. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? He's on his way to stepping sure. down. And I think this points to the fact that we have to stop pretending as if that Trump is a fluke, that the support for Donald Trump and his policies are somehow on the margins. I think we have to be very honest and say that the support for Donald Trump is very central in white evangelicalism today. And I think the very fact that um, the editor of Christianity Today, when he came out and stated this, there was a huge um, brouhaha around it. Of course, he left, and there's a new editor there who has continued to speak out against Trump, to be clear, to be mm-hmm. sure. But I think that we have to be honest about the fact that the, that we're still talking about Trump as a leading political candidate with a great deal of support. I think we have to be honest and say that this expression of Christian nationalism, this willingness to support candidates who theologically fall and morally fall short of stated evangelical theology and piety and morality. I think Hoover shows us that this has been a part of white evangelicalism for a long time. I think you're absolutely right. And so I want to ask how kind of bring it to full circle, like you just did a moment ago, but speak more specifically about the images and the rhetoric that we hear today. We all witnessed uh, the, the tragic events of January 6th, the insurrection. We saw the Christian symbols. We heard the Christian rhetoric. It's continued even after the fact. And what is going on in the country today is an extension of what took place on January the 6th. I was uh, perusing the news the other day. I'm part of a, a group that is fighting for public education across the country. And to see what is happening in Florida and Texas and Oklahoma with this introduction of Prager University materials, that is rewriting history professor and just blatantly lying about history to be an oper- to be i guess not an opportunity i guess it is an opportunity for a christian nationalist but an option for educators to use in the classroom why is this uh, this expression of christian nationalism so much more dangerous than it has been in the past no, I think you're right. I think 
it's very dangerous in part because we are we are lying to ourselves, right? And we're lying to our children. Now, I understand. I'm a, I'm a parent. I understand concerns about what public schools are teaching. We want parents to be um, involved and we want parents to be aware of what's happening in the classroom. I agree with that. But to the extent to which we are willing to buy into lies about who we are as Americans and who we have been as a country, what makes it very pernicious is that we're going to then raise children who are going to become adults one day who will believe in these stories, believe that moments of racism and racist violence, right, that these are anomalies. These are somehow random people on the, on the margins of society who are engaging in this violence and they don't represent what's American, right? And it's dangerous because that then shapes how we are going to think about a solution. If we're just going to say, oh, these are just people on the margins. No, the history shows us, unfortunately, that this has been America for far too long. And until we can honestly look in the mirror and recognize this is part of who we are, it's not all of who America is, but it is very much so a part of America. Until we can reckon with that truth, we will have a very difficult time exterminating and removing this kind of racialized violence from the fabric of our modern society. Well said. So I have one last question. I'm going to take a point of personal privilege. It's not on the sheet, but as you're, I'm listening to you talk and I think you've said not two or three times now that you are a Christian and you're Mm -hmm. talking about Christian nationalism. And obviously you've gone very deep in the weeds of research and you've seen kind of the worst that can come from people who call themselves Christians. Can you share with our listeners or offer some hope or some insight into your motivation to still stand boldly and say, this is who I am, this is part of my identity, and this is what it means to me? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, also part of the Christian tradition are individuals like Fannie Lou Hamer, right, Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, um, and the list goes on of people who saw their faith that called them to first and foremost to, you know, treat others the way they want to be treated first and foremost. And secondly, to speak truth to power and to stand up against all forms of sin and evil that went beyond just sex, drugs and rock and roll. Right. <laughs> but there are other forms of e- that there are other forms of evil and sin that include economics, that include the way that systems and structures are set in place to purposely disadvantage people because of their identity. It's those types of folks that really sustain my faith today. And I'm the director of the MLK Institute at Stanford University, which gives me the opportunity to um, study and read Martin Luther King Jr.'s personal papers. And I find a great deal of hope and courage in reading about King and the way that his Christian faith and hope propelled him. And um, I, I find a, um, that as a source of strength for me. And, you know, finally, it's, it's, it's my family as well. Um, my mother raised us. And my father raised us in a Christian tradition. Two different Christian traditions, I would say. My mother being Pentecostal. <laughs> 
So my mother was very much so believed in charismatic worship um, in, 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 in the spirit. My father, primarily being Baptist, was much more um, reserved in his faith, but still believed in, you know, the fundamentals of treating other people the way you want to be treated. Honesty, integrity, you know, working hard, helping your neighbor. So I had two different, I think, um, perspectives on the Christian tradition growing up. And all of those have stayed with me even until this day, which is why I'm so, I think, concerned and committed to studying this topic, right? Because I feel as if there's a part of me that I want to make sure that young adults, my children, my students in the classroom, that they recognize that, yes, Christian nationalism is very loud. It's very prominent. You see it on television. But that is not all of Christianity, that there is another way to be people of faith. And I have the opportunity in the classroom to share that with them. And, and I take that to be a blessing and a privilege and a huge responsibility. Professor Larone A. Martin, thank you so much for being a guest on Good Faith Weekly. This week, his new book, The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism, is currently available. So pick up a copy as soon as you click off this podcast. Well, Professor, before we let you go this week, Missy's got one last question that she asked every one of our guests. So as you alluded to a moment ago about telling a different story of Christianity, that is very much the ethos of um, Good Faith Media. And as you know, our tagline is there's more to tell. So in that spirit, I will ask you, in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? My more to tell is um, check out um, the kinginstitute.stanford.edu. We have a host of resources there from sermons from Martin Luther King Jr. to letters and even aspects of his childhood. There's more to tell there about Christian faith by looking through King and King's perspective and how that perspective developed. I'm working on a a book right now, which will be adapted into a graphic novel on King's adolescence and his calling, how he decided to become a minister. And I, there's more to tell about how someone who was a teenager who smoked cigarettes, who didn't want to be a minister, mm-hmm. um, decided to, to become a minister and decided to do his best to try to change the, the world in which he lived. So that's my more to tell. And there's more at the kinginstitute.stanford.edu. That's excellent. I hope you'll come back and talk to us when the graphic novel comes out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It would be <laughs> it would be my honor and it would be my honor and privilege. I'd be happy to do it. Thank you so much. Professor, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate uh, all the work that you've done and again, congratulations on the book. It is superb. Thank you for having me. So Mitch. Yes. I think you missed your calling in life. Why is this? You wanted to go like market Jesus. And I think you took a wrong turn because I think your job in life is, or your calling in life was probably really to market books. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I have a tendency to uh, see a book that interests me. And I give it a listen and you know me. You're an evangelist for good books. And I mean, rightly so. But I will say that you have been recommending this book um, for a while, ever Mm -hmm. since you got your hands on it. And, And I will say 
that everyone who has followed your advice mm-hmm. and picked this book up has said, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And that is why it is so important. So with that, I'm going to let you take the microphone for a minute and talk to us about this book and why it's important and what new information it brought in your purview. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, of course, love, you know, reading books, listening to books. And when this book was actually recommended to me and I got my hands on it and I began reading it, I was just enthralled from the moment I hit page one. Professor Martin did a fabulous job. And what I really, really liked about this book, Missy, was that it was new information to me. A lot of times we'll read a book and, you know, we know the narrative, we know the stories, uh, we know some of the perspectives that people present. Uh, It's in new and fresh ways and we really enjoy those. Right. But this was something that was totally new to me. I obviously... I was going to say, tell our audience what was new about it. Yeah, I'm obviously aware of J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, he has been around forever as the director of the FBI. Well, I mean, he's not... Well, he's not any longer, but he was around forever. Rest in peace. (laughs) Rest in peace, yes. Uh, But the way Professor Martin tied in Hoover's faith with his leadership of the FBI was really eye-opening to me. Same. And you can begin to see how the current strain of white Christian nationalism got its beginnings early on, but then during Hoover's reign at the FBI, how it became central to the Bureau and how uh, Hoover actually influenced evangelical Christianity through Christianity Today, even though Hoover himself was not an evangelical. That's what was really fascinating to me. I thought so too. And I also, it, it was funny because as Professor Martin was talking about the fact that he was not quote unquote born again, right? I reverted to my five-year-old self and thought, what do you mean? All Christians should be born again. <laughs> oh, that um, inner fundamentalist rose inter- up and missed the, me really quick. The inner fundamentalist in me was so confused. Brian like, McLaren would be so proud right how, now. <laughs> how are you a Christian if you're not born again? I don't know. I can't make it make sense. But anyways, yeah. no, I thought it was so interesting that he also said that, you know, agents in their, I mean, in their policies were, were um, it, it says to be ministers and soldiers or something, right. something along those lines. And like you said, we just, here's the thing. It's so interwoven in our history. And and when you think about policies of a government agency like that, that had those entrenched values and policies, and it's no wonder we are where we are. No, it is no wonder. And what's interesting, and let's play some books off uh, one another. We, you know, in the interview, even mentioned uh, Jonathan Igg's book uh, about King. And uh, Igg actually refers to the investigation that Hoover conducted uh, on King and set him up and tried to entrap him as well as uh, tried to blackmail him and to silence him because he did not believe in King's strand of Christianity, this idea of social justice. The social gospel versus, yes, conversion and colonialism and, you know, the militant Jesus. So Hoover sides himself with Billy Graham and others in the religious uh, evangelical world uh, to promote this idea of Christian nationalism. Wait, time out. Yeah. I'm wondering if it was because there was more power and money in that side. 
You think? I don't know. I, I don't know. Just a question. Anyways, we can unpack that later. Yeah, that and racism. Well, I mean, there's that as well. Okay, sorry. I digress. Uh, so at any rate, uh, he throws his uh, support behind Graham and the evangelical conservative movement within Christianity, uh, which eventually evolves into you know, this, this right-wing evangelical movement uh, that promotes this idea of conversion and conquest and world dominance uh, if you play it out to its you know, reasonable end. And so, and, and he really tries to quell down the social gospel and because he tried to tie, to, tie the social gospel into communism. And it was it was just this this whole milieu of trying to pit the godless communist uh, against the god fearing Americans. It was all political, but as you already articulated, it was all about power and money. Sorry, did I spoiler? No, not at all. Spoil the ending? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but it is about power and money, and uh, we see that in Hoover's. Uh, his policies with the FBI and how those policies and practices and how he felt what it meant to be a good American and a good Christian being played out today. And it, it fits the mantra of white Christian nationalism this very day. So bring it full circle for us then and expand on that statement. How does it about, um, if it's the narrative. Thing. Yeah, well, you, you look at Hoover's policies and you look that he forced employees of the government to go to these spiritual retreats and to worship uh, at these you know services that were held. Oh, yeah. that's right. He said they yes. had the, the, the mass and yeah, the prayer absolutely. breakfast and all this. Okay, yes. Right. So he's using his influence as a government official uh, to propagate his religious beliefs upon other people. And guess what, Missy? We see that today. today. We see politicians all the time using their faith to oppress people, to marginalize people, to take away people's rights because they believe a certain way. Now, here in America, we have the First Amendment, and those people are entitled to believe anything they want to believe. But that right to believe stops when it infringes upon my rights. Right. And that's where it's getting really fuzzy today because there is a segment within our culture that is claiming that they have a divine right to impress their beliefs upon the rest of us because this is a quote-unquote Christian nation. It is totally erroneous, totally false, but that's what they're trying to sell us. So it's definitely that conquering mentality yeah. and, and, you know, that's all wrapped up in colonialism and all those things, sure. those buzzwords that we've talked about lately when, you know, you mentioned conversion and all of these things, you know, growing up when we did um, in the seventies and eighties, how much we just didn't realize how all of this was interwoven in our, in our being, in our community, in our, our nation. And, you know, now that we're, unpacking and seeing kind of behind the curtain, mm -hmm. I think that's why these works are so important to us today yeah. to look at, um, to read, to be honest about, you know, our history and, and, and what has happened and kind of what is in the fabric of our nation so that we can do better going forward. Yeah. And, you know, it's another piece of this puzzle uh, of this struggle since the beginning of the country of trying to uh, 
this struggle between those who believe this is a Christian nation and those who believe it is a secular nation where Christianity can thrive as long as the two are separated. And we continue to see that uh, even today, but we also get glimpses of it throughout history when books like Professor Martin's come on the market and his scholarship and research was so well done. Uh, that uh, he reminds us that this is an ongoing struggle uh, that's been going on for a long time, and we must continue to combat it and remind people that the First Amendment is both the freedom for religion and the freedom from From religion. religion. And so this was extremely important work, and I'm so, so glad uh, that we were able to have him on the show. Absolutely. So while I have my cheerleading uniform on for college football next week, (laughs) you can have your cheerleading uniform on for Professor Martin and uh, all the books that you have um, come to love. I will be happy to do so (laughs) in a heartbeat. Pom-poms, megaphones? Yes, absolutely. All all the things? All right. Well, I will um, make sure that happens. Uh, well, again, we want to say thank you to Professor Martin's mom. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I now want to meet her as well. She's, yeah, raised an amazing human being. She did. She did. So, well, we hope uh, you enjoyed the pod this week and that uh, you have a great weekend and we'll see you back next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.